0: morning. If you have your copy this morning of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. While you turn there, I want to thank everybody. Uh, I'm not going to do it by name because there's a lot of you. Um, My family feels very loved and welcomed, and we are so appreciative for all the help that we've received. Um, just in in helping us travel, and unloading, unpacking meals, calls, texts, encouragements. Um, We are so thankful to be here, and we are so thankful for the Christ-like love that has been exhibited day after day after day, uh, which is a testament to uh, the health and the love of Christ at work at Ridgecrest Baptist. I have good news, and that is that the good news is not a new pastor. It will long outlast the new pastor, and it was here long before the new pastor arrived. My usual practice is to walk through books of the Bible. That is the majority of the diet of preaching that we will do here while I'm preaching. Uh, But it takes a pastor a little bit of time to get settled, to get his... uh, finger on the pulse of the church to see what would be a good book uh, for us to start walking through soon. So uh, from now until Easter, we're going to do a short seven-week mini-series called Foundational Truths, Renewing Our Minds from the Enemy's Lies. And the reason that I want to do this is because we are living in a fallen world and truth is constantly being attacked. There is an enemy prowling around like a lion who longs to deceive us, who longs for us to love the world more than God who made the world. And we are constantly watching truth be redefined. And in the midst of that, if a church will be faithful to the Lord Jesus, who is our head, we must stand on the truth. I could do this series for probably years and years because there's so many lies that the Word of God speaks into, but I've identified about seven that Lord willing we'll walk through in the coming few months. The first lie this morning is this, that getting the gospel right is no Big deal. There are deceptive gospel ditches that people, even professing believers, are constantly falling in and living in, and they are missing the hope of the gospel. And we are all prone to fall into those ditches in a culture, even a church culture, where the gospel is constantly being compromised. So this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I'm going to try to help us to have renewed minds and get the gospel right. And if you're here and you think, come on, Nick, we already know the gospel. That's why we're here on Sunday. If you've outgrown the gospel, come talk to me after, because you should be the pastor of the church. We don't outgrow the gospel. That old, old story is something that is the foundation of our life. So if you would, please stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. I won't always do this, but this morning we're actually going to flip over. We're going to read Ephesians 1 to set context before we read the first ten verses of Ephesians 2. If your legs hurt, that's fine. You can sit. God still loves you. But if you can stand, let's read God's Word. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to make mention of you in my prayers, asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, You have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you this morning for your undeserved grace. And I pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, will take the truth of your Word, will apply it to our hearts to fix our eyes on your Son, Lord, so that all we can do is respond in worship. You deserve all of our praise. God, make distractions flee. Shut the enemy down. Fill us with your Spirit and help us to not believe lies about your good news of Jesus Christ. I ask these things in His powerful and precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My initial plan was to primarily emphasize verses 8, 9, and 10 this morning. But the more this week that I looked at the text, I really felt like 1 through 10 are a unit, and we wouldn't do service to the text if we didn't cover all of them. So I want to point out four truths to you this morning from those first 10 verses of chapter 2. And the first is this. It's found in verses 1 through 3, and that is that grace alone overcomes the spiritual Grave, Grace alone overcomes the spiritual grave. Verses 1 through 3 are dark. They are bleak, depressing. They present mankind as a helpless and hopeless people. They describe our status before God not as us treading water, trying to stay close to God, but instead as us being spiritually dead. What the Bible teaches is that when our representative head, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, fell and rebelled against God in Genesis 3, that everyone who would come from him and Eve, which is all of us, are born now with a sinful nature. We are spiritually unresponsive to God. You remember the story Adam was told before. If you eat of the tree, what's going to happen? You will surely die. And many are confused by the fact that God doesn't just zap them dead as soon as they sin, but instead lets them live and live for a long time. Well, the solution to that dilemma is simply this. While physical death was delayed, spiritual death was instantaneous. Not just for Adam and Eve, but for all their progeny. So Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us in these verses that in Adam, Adam, in our default sin nature, our default is what? To follow the course of the fallen world, to believe and run after the lies of our great deceiver, Satan, to feed our flesh as creatures of instinct, to pursue selfish ambition as if this world is about us, to sit on the throne as our own king and queen, trying to independently and autonomously run our lives and to love the things God has made more than we love the God who made them. And what's terrifying in these verses is that the spiritual condition that makes that we are in makes us enemies of our holy God. Because God is holy, because He is righteous and just, God must, do what is right. And that means he must oppose all evil. And we all know this and we all want a God like that, don't we? When we see undeniable evil in the world, what do we want? We want God to move and act and put it down. The problem is is we want God's justice and holiness for evil in the world but not for evil in our own hearts. Paul says, because God must stand against evil, he describes us apart from Christ as children of wrath. Children of wrath. Which simply means that in that spiritually dead condition, you don't want what you deserve. Because if we got what we deserved, all we would get would be the holy, eternal wrath of Almighty God. And what's worse is is that we can't fix this deadly dilemma. You can't do it on your own. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how gifted you are, or how righteous you are. You and I can't fix this problem on our own. Instead, we not only have a guilt problem, we also have a power problem. Why? Because dead people can't bring themselves back to life. Dead people don't desire God, dead people don't delight in God, dead people don't bring themselves back to life. I have done many a funeral, and never once, trust me, I would remember, never once in the middle of it has the person come back to life. Instead, in order for spiritually dead people to come back to life, it is like Jesus showing up to Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. Unless Jesus says, get up and come out of the grave, Lazarus is staying dead. And it's the same thing for us. Grace alone can overcome the spiritual grave. And that's why that beautiful conjunction, but, is so amazing in verse 4. Because when you read 1 through 3, it makes you want to crawl up in a hole and die. There is no hope for the future when you read that, right? But God, but God, but God being rich, In mercy, God must cause us to come to life. God must cause us to be born again. God must cause the gospel to become real to us. God must overcome our resistance and our rebellion. God must lead us to repentance and faith. The power of God and the grace of God alone can overcome the spiritual grave. And friends, when you get that, it's going to change your life when you feel that in your bones, when you recognize that this is a God who saves, what it's going to do is it's going to change you. It's going to change you how? Well, one way it's going to change you is that when you know that you are saved by the undeserving and powerful grace of God, it will make you to where you can't keep on being proud. You can't keep on living entitled with your chest out as if you are a big deal because if God saved you and you didn't save yourself, then you will slowly but surely, by the grace of God, grow in humility. You see, boasting dies where God's grace reigns. That's one effect When we get this, it will create in us a holy and happy humility that puts the focus on God, not ourselves. But another effect it will have on us is that we will grow in prayerful dependence instead of living our lives as if it's all up to us. You see, we plant and we water, but who gives the growth? God. God gives the growth. God saves the souls. God matures the saints. God builds the church. God sustains the church. And when we recognize the grace and the power of this God, we will get off of our high horse of self-sufficiency and we'll begin to live on our knees pleading for God to work and move in our lives and the lives of those around us. Our text shows us that grace Alone overcomes the spiritual grave. But secondly, we see in verses 4 and 5, and then down in those famous verses that you learned in Awana growing up, or RAs or GAs or whatever it was before I was alive, you you learned Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, those verses show us our second truth, and that is this, only our loving Trinitarian God gives grace. Only our loving Trinitarian God gives grace. Look at verse 4. It shows us the source of grace, but God. The source of grace is God. Why does this God show grace? The text shows us the reason for His grace, but God being rich in mercy because Of the great love with which He loved us. The text doesn't say because of how amazing and lovable we were. That's not what it says. It says because of His loving disposition, grace is given to us. The reason for God's grace is God's self-giving love. The text goes on, and we begin to see not only the source of grace, God, not only the reason for grace, God's love, but we also see the effect of God's grace. And we see that it has a few different effects. One is God's grace pardons us, and one is that God's grace enlivens us. It brings us to life. When verse 4 says God made us alive, Paul is speaking here of regeneration. Or the same meaning, just not the big theological word, the new birth. What's the new birth? The new birth is the moment that the Spirit of God applies the gospel to our dead hearts so that spiritual life is produced. We just sang about it in like every song we sang. It's that moment when the scales fall off of our blind eyes and we can finally see the beauty of Christ and what His gospel means for us. It's the moment when the old, old story that we grow up hearing our whole lives but were unmoved by becomes real and amazing and beautiful to us. He's talking here about this enlivening effect. That that the grace of God has, but that enlivening effect, that new birth, is only possible. How? Because of what Jesus has accomplished through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. The text says God made us alive together with Christ. Our new life as believers is intricately connected to Jesus. And the reason is that Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, His work accomplished the atonement for our sin. His work solved our guilt problem and paid the penalty that we could never pay. He went to the cross of Calvary and he took our guilt upon himself. Hallelujah. He came and He bore our shame and our guilt, and He faced our hell, and He faced the wrath of God in our place as a propitiatory sacrifice. And that means that because of His work, if we are in Christ by faith, we can be justified. Y'all say with me, justified. Say it again justified. That's a big word. You should teach your kids what it means. We're going to learn justified. We're going to learn sanctified. We're going to learn regeneration. We're going to learn propitiation and expiation in time. Don't dumb down the gospel for people. Teach them the big five-letter words and what it means. This matters. Justification. All justification means is that we are counted not guilty in the sight of God. We are pardoned forever. When we go to stand before the throne of God and he asks us, why should I let you into my kingdom? If you pull out your spiritual resume and you start saying, look at these good works, look at how much faith I had, look at I was a prayer warrior and I served in 48 things and I had this title and I raised my kids right, you're going to be told Apart from me, I never knew you. But if instead on that day you just point at Jesus and say, Because of what he did for me, you're going to be told, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my kingdom forever. That's what justification is. Justification means that God doesn't see us in all our sin, but instead he sees us through the lens of his son Jesus and his son Jesus's perfect righteousness that is now credited to my account. I didn't earn it. I didn't do it. And yet I have an alien righteousness away and outside of me that has been credited to my account. It's Just as if I never sinned, and just as if I always obeyed. These verses highlight that Jesus' finished work atones for our sin so that justification before God is possible, and yet, when that justification is real, that good news of His finished work has to be applied to your life. And it's applied by the Spirit of God so that we are born again. Justification and regeneration go together. And when we start trying to separate it, we miss the gospel. And we start living in the gospel ditches that we'll look at in just a minute. When we trust in Christ because the Spirit has taken that gospel and applied it to our hearts, our guilt problem is forever solved but also our power problem is overcome. How? From our Trinitarian God because God, the loving Father, planned this gracious salvation. The salvation was accomplished by His Son through His finished work, and that salvation is applied to your heart and your soul by the Spirit of God. It is all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from first to last. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But we also have to remember how that good news and that grace comes to us. The source of the grace is God. The reason for the grace is his self-giving love. The effects of the grace is it enlivens but also pardons us. But the reception of that grace in our lives is through faith. You receive it by believing it. Faith is trust. Faith is reliance. Faith is leaning. But here's the reality we must know. It is possible to have a whole lot of faith in the wrong thing and to be deceived. And so often today when Christians talk about faith, they put the emphasis on how much faith we have instead of who the faith is in. But what we need to see is that what matters more than the quantity of your faith is the object of your faith, and the object is the person and the work of Jesus. It's believing that he is who he said he was, fully God and fully man, and that what he came to do actually works that he made a way for us to be at peace with God again, that his life, death, and resurrection were sufficient and enough to atone for our rebellion, that through his work that we can be guaranteed a not guilty verdict before God. It's trusting, friends, that if you lean your whole life on Jesus, that His work for you is strong enough to carry that weight. It's trusting that if you build your whole life on the foundation of Jesus' person and work, that it will hold you up, that if you make Him the anchor of your soul, that no matter how big the storm is, that you will be unmoved today, but also forever, because Jesus is enough. Oh, friend, this morning, have you put your faith in this Savior? Are you building your life? Are you building your future? Are you building your assurance? Are you building your eternity on Jesus or something else? There's no other anchor, and there's no other foundation offered in this world that will hold you. There is salvation in no other name. And if you're here this morning and the Spirit of God is moving and stirring and convicting and compelling you to run to Jesus in faith because you realize He's not the anchor of your foundation, we're going to have a party later when you make that public. We're going to go crazy for Jesus because this group of people is not a bunch of perfect, righteous, holy people. But instead, we're a bunch of sinners saved by grace who love to celebrate the grace of God working in people's lives. So if you're here and you're scared, what if somebody thinks something about me? Who cares what they think about you? Think about what God thinks about you. If you give your life to Jesus, if you repent and believe, you can be guaranteed a not guilty verdict before God. And on top of that, He'll change your heart and your soul and your life. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will save. And nothing else can hold you fast. Our text shows us that only our loving Trinitarian God gives us the grace that we all desperately need. The third thing I want you to see in our text, it's found in verses 8, 9, and 10, is this, that understanding the grace of God in the right way will keep us out of gospel ditches. Understanding the grace of God the right way will keep us out of gospel ditches. There's two ditches. One is legalism, and one is license. Legalism is the belief that what I do makes me right with God. License is the belief that it doesn't matter what I do, I'm right with God. And if we live perpetually in those ditches, we miss the gospel. And we are very prone to do those things. So I want you to see in trying to think through these gospel ditches, first this. The justifying grace of God will keep us out of the ditch of legalism. The justifying grace of God will keep us out of the ditch of legalism. Listen, I don't know all y'all yet, but here's the thing. People are the same everywhere. And what I know about you without personally knowing you is that a bunch of you are in here are living in bondage today. You're living in bondage because you're constantly trying to perform for God. You're living your life as if your standing with God is dependent upon how faithful you are. So many today live their life as if their faith in Jesus plus Their good works is what makes them right with God. So they find themselves living on the hamster wheel. They're putting tons of effort and energy constantly into either trying to get into the favor of God or to try to stay in the favor of God based on what they do. And you know what that produces? It produces weary and joyless saints who are always trying to prove themselves and never can find assurance. But Paul says to you in verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Friends, you're standing with God. Your not guilty verdict in the future, your adoption as a son or daughter of God, your justification is a one time decisive event in the Christian life. You are justified in that moment that you repent and believe and are born again, and you are justified in that moment and forevermore. Your status changes in that moment from being an enemy of God to being an adopted child of God. All your sin, past sin, present sin, and future sin, sin in words, sin in thought, sin in deed, has been nailed to the cross and atoned for. Your shame is covered. Your guilt is gone. Your penalty is paid. You are not guilty. You are a son or daughter of God. Now, are we called to be holy? Yeah. Are we called to be transformed? Yeah. Are we called to serve God and work hard for God? Of course we are. But listen to me. That growth in holiness, that service you perform, that transformation in your life, that personal holiness is not the basis or the ground or the source of your salvation. And a bunch of y'all today, you're living not by justification through faith, alone in the work of Christ, but you're living by justification by parenting. If only I parent right and my kids turn out right, then I'll be faithful. You're living justification by marriage. If only I'm the perfect husband or wife. Justification by my job. Justification by my service. Justification by my spiritual disciplines. My prayer and fasting and Bible reading and things like that. Justification by my church attendance or my tithing. Now are all those things things we're called to do? Yes. But do those things affect your standing before God? No, no not in terms of your justification. When you start living like your performance affects your standing with God, you're in trouble because you're believing a lie. You are preaching a message with your life that says Jesus' work on the cross was not enough. I just need to supplement and add to it a little bit. But that's not true. Jesus paid it all, baby. He paid it all. When he was hanging on the cross, you Bible scholars know this, he did not say, I got it started for you, y'all finished the work. He said what? It is finished. It is finished. Friends, if we live in the gospel ditch of legalism, we will be miserable, joyless Christians. And this is what it will produce. On your good days... You know those days, the good days. You wake up when your alarm goes off. Man, you get that devotion in. Get a little exercise, say your prayers. You don't lose it on your, your unrighteous kids who are frustrating you that morning. You don't flip anybody the bird on the way to your morning commute. You don't gossip at the water cooler. You try to take that conversation to Jesus. You're trying to be a light in the, you know, the good days. You serve, you do this and that. What happens is when we're living as if our standing with God is based on our performance, is on our good days when we have our act together and the Spirit is working in us, we'll start to grow proud and self-righteous. Eventually we'll start looking around at others and be like, man, all these people need to get on my level. Which then makes nobody want to be around you. But then on our bad days, when we wake up late, we didn't have time for devotion. We kick the dog on the way out the door. We said the word we shouldn't have said. And we lost it on our kids. We will find ourselves in despair and having major assurance issues, not even sure if we're saved. If you're living your life as if you're standing with God is based on what you do, you will either be proud or despairing, and sometimes you'll be both in the same day. But friends, if you're truly born again, your standing with God is secure, and your verdict is not guilty, and God is your Father today, and tomorrow, and next week, and next month, and forever. And you can stop trying to perform for God because He is a good Father and He does not disown His children. You can stop trying to justify yourself. You can get off the hamster wheel. Why? Because He loves you in Christ and you're His forever. And when you feel that, In your bones and your soul it will empower you to exhale and to rest and to worship the God who saves by grace alone if you want to get out of the ditch of legalism you've got to remember that the basis of your justification is not what you do but what Christ has done that's one ditch legalism the other one is license But this is the truth. God's enlivening or transforming, regenerating, sanctifying, whatever words you want to use, that grace of God will keep us from living in the ditch of license because as many people as live on the hamster wheel trying to prove themselves for God, there are just as many, if not more, who have heard about the amazing grace of God and are heartbreakingly beginning to use that grace as a license to continue in sin. They will knowingly do things that they should not do and they will knowingly neglect things that they know they're called to do and when they think about it, they will think this, I'll just ask for forgiveness later, but I'm going to do what I want now because I'm saved by grace. Many will hear this phrase about your freedom in Christ and they misunderstand what that means and they think that means, man, I got fire insurance. I am free. I am saved by grace. I can do what I want, be in charge of my life, and can't nobody tell me nothing. And what happens when people are living in this ditch of license? They start to scream, legalism! I have a relationship, mine isn't religion, legalism, keep your law to yourself. Anytime that they start to hear calls to obey God, to repent of sin, or to be holy. But what's happening for those who are living in that ditch is they have separated the justifying grace of God from the regenerating grace of God that brings us alive and here's the reality we should never make friends in Scripture into enemies because those things go together Scripture teaches that everyone who is truly right with God is always born again as a new creation. They are given new hearts, new desires, and new spiritual power, but also new spiritual desire to obey and follow God. The Spirit of God literally comes down and indwells us as a temple and the Spirit can't live at peace with the flesh. And those changed hearts will always produce new fruit and good fruit and good works and transform lives. That's what verse 10 says. Right after Paul says, you ain't saved by your works, he says, but you were created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world to do good works. Some hear that and think, is he contradicting himself? No. Verses 8 and 9 emphasize that the ground of our salvation is not what we do, but verse 10 reminds us that what we do matters to God because when we're saved by the justifying grace of God, we will be empowered by the sanctifying grace of God to be new creations. In short, We are not called to make a momentary decision for Jesus that does not last, but to become a lifelong disciple of Jesus. Jesus cannot be your Savior without also being your Lord and your King. And God's justifying grace is always accompanied by His sanctifying grace. I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that the Christian life is supposed to be perfect, sinless bliss with doubtless assurance and freedom from all temptations and failures. No, of course not. If that's what you've heard me say, stop thinking that's what I said. That's not what I said. The true Christian life is a spiritual war. The Spirit of God and the sinful flesh dwell inside of us all and there's going to be battles and struggles and temptations and failures and repentance and faith and there's going to be seasons in the valley and seasons on the mountaintop. But listen to me, that's the normal Christian life. But what I'm saying is this, if you zoom out, If you don't just look at how you're doing today, but you zoom out and you look at your Christian life over the last year, over the last decade, over the last 40 years, even though it's going to be marked by ups and downs and starts and stops and a whole lot of repentance along the way, you will slowly but surely see on that graph growing in Christ-likeness. you got to zoom out to see it. Because if you zoom in real close, it's going to look like this, Right? Some days I'm great. Some days I don't know if I'm saved. The next day I think I'm an apostle. The next day I'm scared to death of what the world thinks about me. The next day I'm Peter and John a are complaining boldly, right? If you zoom in too much, you're going to have insurance issues. You're going to see that up and down. And when you get down, you're going to say, how am you saved? But if you zoom out, there should be a... this progressive, steady growth in Christ-likeness. But here's the reality. If you're living with God's grace as a license to sin, you will rarely see that upward trend because you have a settled posture and disposition that the grace of God does not change you. And if that's you this morning, you need to honestly assess if you're truly born again because it's very possible that you have redefined grace and the version of Christianity that you are trusting in is not the one found in the Bible. True new covenant conversion produces transformed lives, renewed minds, spiritual hunger for God, and a new posture of repentance towards sin. Which is another way of saying, if you can comfortably live in unrepentant sin, if you have no desire or hunger for the Lord, and if you are living a life that is totally indistinguishable from the fallen world around us, it doesn't matter how many times you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or got dunked in a baptismal, there's no evidence from your life that you've been born again. And we're going to throw a party if you get that right today. Because Jesus saves sinners, even sinners who've been in church for a long time and have misunderstood the grace of God. If we will stay out of these ditches, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And we have to remember as we preach those truths to ourselves every day who we are in Jesus, what is true of us because of Jesus, and what we are empowered to be because of Jesus. Last point. Now listen, it's soup day. There's lunch available. Don't zone me out. The last truth is this. It's found in verse 6 and 7. Grace alone can assure our anxious souls. Grace alone can assure our anxious souls. What we have to understand is this. Those who are constantly living in these ditches of legalism or license. I'm not talking about they're slipping in and out, but they're living there. They've been living there for a long time. They are in danger of having missed the gospel altogether. But we also need to know this, that every true believer in Jesus will find themselves sliding in and out of these ditches quite often. Every one of us in different ways are prone to trust too much in our works and to become proud or despairing as a result. And every one of us can see times in our life where we're prone to use our freedom in Christ to compromise the standards of God. If we are staying constantly in those ditches, it might mean that we've missed the gospel, but if you find yourself sliding in and out, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do a bunch of soul searching and question if you're saved. What it means is, is you need to repent of trusting in your works and repent of using God's grace as a license to sin, and you need to remember Jesus, your Savior, who loves us even in the mess and mire and muck of our lives, and we need to run to the cross of Calvary and live at the foot of Calvary and remember that Jesus' righteousness is our own and we need to pray and beg God for transforming grace to grow us in holiness and then as we do that we need to rest secure in our Savior. If we find ourselves sliding in and out of those gospel ditches, we need to repent and believe the gospel. But no matter how many times you preach that gospel to yourself, the reality is, is you're still going to battle assurance issues in this life. And our, our enemy, Satan, he will whisper lies in our ears and to our souls when our hearts are wandering and not rooted. But when those devilish lies reach your ears... It is only the grace of God that can assure your anxious souls. And that's where verse 6 and 7 is so beautiful. We read that if we are in Christ, our standing before God, how secure is it? It's so secure that Paul says that in the eyes of God, even though we are not yet there, We are already, in the eyes of God, raised up in Christ and seated with Christ at the right hand of God. Christ has you on his heart. Christ is praying and interceding for you right now. In the sight of God, it is as if we are already in heaven with our Savior and with our God. We can take our standing with God to the bank that we are righteous in Christ. We are on the heart of Christ. We are on the lips of Christ. We are in the prayers of Christ. It is almost like we are already in the presence of God because there is nothing, friends, nothing at all that can set Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we need to get out of those ditches and we need to run hard after Jesus and we need to pursue holiness and obedience but we need to remember that as we're running hard to be holy and obeying, as we're running hard after Jesus, we're not doing it to earn the favor of God, we're doing it because we already have the favor of God. And in the words of the hymn before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May we run to Him in faith today. May we worship Him with all our hearts. May our anxious souls rest in His unfailing love. And may we plead with Him to pick us up out of those gospel ditches and set our feet on the path He calls us to run. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank You so much for that grace that You have shown. I thank you so much that you are a God who saves sinners. God, I thank you that you come to us in our spiritually dead condition. And you cause us to be born again. I thank you, God, that what Philippians 1 says is 2, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. I thank you, God, that you are one who loves us so much that you sent us your son. And God, I pray right now for everyone under the sound of my voice, God, that you will help us to do business with you. God, I pray that you will bring affliction and conviction to those who are comfortably living but are not right with you and help them to see that Jesus is standing with open arms calling them to run to Him in repentance and faith. And I pray, God, that you will give comfort and rest to those who find themselves afflicted with trials and temptations, but also afflicted with assurance issues, never sure that they're right with you. God, help us to remember your grace is what saves. And help us to remember that we're never too far gone to turn, repent, Believe, surrender, have peace, and rest in your presence. God, I pray that your Spirit will prompt us to respond, whether it's standing or seated, whether it's at the altar or where we're at, whether it's singing or silently praying. God, move us by your Spirit and help us in this moment to draw near to you. I ask these things in the name of of Jesus. Amen.